Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to episode 88 of the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that takes politics and then puts it in a drawer and re-gifts it to someone else because it's awful. I'm Tina Duyeb and this week I'm really starting to think that the only bloody thing giving honour to the title of president is a brand of soft French cheese and the whole point of President Brie is that it's not even meant to be very mature. Yes, the big fart noise in an almost otherwise quiet week of news was the expose of the President's Club, lesser men-only charity gala and more, it seems, eBay for pricks. The Financial Times reported that not only was this annual gathering pretty grim on account of its attendee list looking like a selected cross-section of Spectre board members and the Moss Eisley Cantina, but also because those attendees groped, abused and harassed the female staff in ways that suggest their 2018 New Year's resolution was to try their best to get played by Casey Affleck in a Miramax movie of their life. The revelations have caused the President's Club to close down after charities return their donations because it turns out saying you'll help disadvantaged children by abusing women is like saying you want to help cancer victims by chucking nuclear rods at oncologists. But pressure has also been put on the Conservative Party after MP and exactly what the blueprint for evil scientist in The Sims would look like, Nadim Zahawi, attended the gala. Not the best look for a newly appointed Undersecretary of State for Children and Families, but Zahawi says he left early, so maybe he was just taking notes for a new department booklet on people kids should avoid for safety. The co-chairman of the President's Club and Conservative donor David Meller has had to step aside from his position of non-executive board member of the Department of Education. After him and Toby Young, I'm starting to wonder if the Conservatives' next educational appointment is just going to be Sid the Sexist. Prime Minister and anguished mushroom Theresa May said she was appalled by the reports, though it's hard to tell if she meant that as that's how her face always is. May, who only eight months earlier told The One Show that there were boy jobs and girl jobs, said she is worried about what the President Club says about the wider issues in society about attitudes to women. She has now pledged to review the use of non-disclosure agreements as the women working at the President's Club were forced to sign them, preventing them from reporting abuse. Though, judging by previous government decisions, I wouldn't be surprised if they're unable to tell anyone what the review says when it's done in case it weakens their position. 
In other gatherings of the kind of people that will one day be taken down by a vigilante and a scene scored with epic orchestral sounds, this week was Davos 2018. No, Davos is not the Swiss version of the British comedy channel, whereby their version of Taskmaster, Alf Sayer, has weird challenges such as who can get euthanised quickest or who can hide this Nazi gold in 20 minutes. No, Davos is the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, a foundation who aims to improve the state of the world by engaging businesses, political, academic and other leaders of society to help shape global, regional and industry agendas. Oh, it sounds great. Except this year, that ideal was entirely fucked by a speech from President of America and congealed custard sculpture of a Belgian griffin dog with underbite Donald Trump. Trump's speech very much revolved around persuading everyone to trade with the US, claiming America first does not mean America alone, a phrase that he probably thought of after the First Lady Melania refused to travel with him and then moved out of the White House after reports Donald had slept with a porn star. Many lauded the President's supposedly tame speech because, you know, it only included him criticising the press and getting booed for it once. It's bizarre how several reports say the conference found him overall more pragmatic than they thought. Sure, nothing more pragmatic than saying when people have forgotten the world becomes fractured after causing divisions around the world. That's like saying that because of all the people who've become galvanised to fight against him and protest, he's a pretty inspirational guy. Rectal Offal, Piers Morgan, interviewed Donald Trump in an event that I think is important as it meant that by watching any other channel at the same time, I could avoid them both at once. During their mouth-breathing, Trump says he was ready to apologise for retweeting racist group Britain First in 2017, but still hasn't actually apologised. Then again, considering how poorly written some of his tweets are, maybe it just takes him ages to rev up to being able to spell one. I guess sorry does seem to be the hardest word. Yeah, I said it. I said it. I said that right there. Trump also said that he is not a feminist in a scoop for Piers Morgan that's right up there with him getting an exclusive on where bears shit that you have to open doors before entering or how his own face looks like someone spent years pummeling bagpipes made of flesh. In other news about people with faces that look like failed lab experiments, former Prime Minister and skin wrapped around futility David Cameron was caught on camera at Davos telling the head of a large steel company that Brexit is a mistake, not a disaster. By that scale, his time at number 10 was just a terrible boo-boo and his entire legacy will be remembered as national snaffing. Meanwhile, current Prime Minister Theresa May made her Davos speech all about artificial intelligence because, hey, talk about what you know. Her speech was only two-thirds full in attendance, which either suggests global Britain really isn't so much anymore or they were all worried about being bored or coughed at for an hour, or both. This is all added to more criticism of May, this time saying she's too cautious as Prime Minister. Yep, cautious. Exactly the word for someone who announced a snap election that no one, including her, was ready for, and is currently pushing forward with the biggest change in legislation the UK has seen in years, despite having made no preparations for it. With this level of caution, I'm starting to think her being in number 10 is actually less hazardous a position than her, say, being a skydiving instructor. Then again, if Trump can be pragmatic, maybe May can be cautious, and I'm going to start telling everyone Everyone that I'm hugely successful. Brexit continues to create more mass divisions than a top mathematician, and it's again the turn of the Conservatives to split, as some hard Brexiteers are afraid that the process is being diluted by the rest of their party. Good, and may I suggest, with this dilution, one part Brexit to three parts remain, to make sure it's not the sort of end result that makes you feel quite sick. Brexit secretary and man made entirely of the stuff left behind when you remove a sticker but it tears a bit, David Davis, tried to allay concerns of in-party fighting by saying there is no difference between him, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, and to be honest, I'm not sure who that reflects worst on. 
Three cabinet ministers, Davis, Hammond and Clark, have now put aside their differences to write to business leaders promising that EU rules will remain unchanged for two years following March 2019, saying it's a pledge of continuity, which is laughable considering that the Brexit process has had more continuity problems than The Last Jedi. Yes, that is how I feel about that film. No, don't at me. Considering how divisive that movie was, I often think it should be referred to as an official Brexit movie, much like Die Hard is definitely a Christmas film. Governor of the Bank of England and Walking Just for Men advert Mark Carney said that all the warnings about leaving the EU have already come true as the vote has cost the UK £10 million in lost growth since the referendum, which is news to everyone who, like me, definitely grew pounds over Christmas. And lastly, the government has announced a dedicated national security communications unit to tackle fake news, a decision that they'll probably quickly regret when results mean they have to fire the entire Brexit department within six weeks. It turns out that a youth quake didn't happen in the 2017 election, according to the Britain Election Survey's report, so Labour's popularity surge was actually down to people of all ages, which is good news for them, but bad news for the Oxford Dictionary, who will now have to change the definition of the term youth quake to mean youth turnouts in elections is constantly shaky. And finally, Foreign Secretary and What If Someone Shaved Bungle from Rainbow, Boris Johnson, is apparently a descendant of the mummified 17th century woman found in Basel. And this explains why so many of his shit plans unravel and then quickly fall apart. Hey Parpollers! Does that, does that title work? I still have absolutely no idea what to refer to you all as. Uh, please do send any suggestions over PP Bays. No, not that. That doesn't work. Ear plebs. That's a bit rude, isn't it? Anyway, uh, welcome to you, whoever you are. Old listeners, new listeners and uh, sort of middling ones. How are you all this week? Still unable to respond to questions asked on already recorded podcasts? Oh, that is a shame. Well, anyway, I am Dandy, uh, which I feel is a term not used often enough in today's vernacular, unless you are a Warhol or a lion. And really, it should be open to all, because I am very much Dandy at the moment. And the reason is because I had a totally jammy weekend, which I'm only telling you about for maximum shitty bragging points, um, sort of apologies in advance, but not really. Um, I got a message on Friday saying that I'd won the Hamilton lottery. Um, Now, if you don't know Hamilton, then who are you? Where have you been? And how did you escape from the past? But basically, it's a hip-hop musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton, an often forgotten founding father of America who came from the Caribbean and was hugely pivotal to the War of Independence and the US Constitution. And look, I often hate musicals because I don't trust people who sing about everything. No one is ever that happy. But I have a handful of faves, and this has now shot to the top of that list because it is immense with an incredible cast, brilliant music and script, which is political and funny and emotional and the choreography was just amazing and seriously I've not stopped humming all the tunes since but it has been making me think about two things um one is that if something is just brilliant and the best of its class and often it doesn't matter what genre it is you know like I can't stand country music because I think it's whiny but hey Johnny Cash was still brilliant or I've never really liked boxing because if I want to watch people hit each other for money I'll pay more attention to the drug deals that happened on our road late at night but watching old Muhammad Ali footage is constantly mesmerising and similarly I think a lot of musicals are bullshit but this was incredible just surpassed all that Um, the other thing I couldn't stop thinking about was how in 200 years time I really can't imagine anyone making a musical about anyone involved in Brexit because it's going to be pretty hard to sing about a lack of conviction for two hours, isn't it? 
Although they could keep a lot of the same song titles as Hamilton, um, including What Comes Next, Cabinet Battle, History Has Its Eyes on You and Helpless. Anyway, not that it needs any of my endorsements, but do go see Hamilton if you can, which you can't because it's sold out unless you win tickets like me. Uh, so good luck because it is possible. Oh, God, that was annoying, wasn't it? I was really annoying then. Sorry, but also not sorry. I got to see Hamilton. It was amazing. Um, big thank you this week to John, Bradley and Janine for the Kofi donations. And if you would like to donate to the podcast, yes, you. Maybe you would. Do you? Go on. Um, or, you know, maybe you just want to help me escape debt after I bought one beer at the theatre on Saturday today it was five pounds for a bottle of san miguel a normal small bottle what do you mean i won really cheap tickets so i should really shut up about it and i'm just using it as an excuse to go hey i saw hamilton again <clears throat> anyway look you can either do a one-off donation at ko-fi.com that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro or you can join the team of champs who donate monthly at patreon.com forward slash parpol bro of course if you can't donate this podcast is free and i would like it to continue to be free but um then maybe you spread the word about the show tell people to go listen to old episodes or interviews you enjoyed and uh, maybe just aggressively steal their phones and subscribe them to the podcast and then hand their phones back and then they won't know why their phone's memory is absolutely fucked in about three months' time, any of those are good. Or or you could review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Podweasel, or Castflea, or any of the billions of apps that you might use. And if you're a new listener, then thank you for coming on board this weekly nonsense, and why not also listen back to older episodes as well? Um, there are a number of topics you might be thinking, why haven't you interviewed anyone on that subject here in a new massive bell end, which is, is a bit aggressive. Calm down, mate, that's not necessary. But also, I might have interviewed someone on that. Just go back through the previous guests and check. All the jokes will be hugely out of date, but the interviews will still be really good and descriptions of Boris Johnson are all still very, very relevant. Also, this week, if for some weird reason one hour of me in your ears is not enough, uh, I'm the guest on this very, very fun Dream Factory podcast, uh, which is an excellently silly show hosted by Joel Grove and John Harris, where they improvise and imagine amalgamated or made-up films suggested by the listeners. Uh, some of the ones on the show I'm on include Fantastic Beats and Where to Find Them and A Bad Day to Die Hard. Uh, it's really, really fun nonsense, so do check that out if you like. We talked quite a lot about buffaloes and at one point about... Uh, uh, the sort of etiquette of eating a potato. Anyway, um, if you don't like it, then don't check it out. You know, I'm not your dad. Uh, on this week's show, I am speaking to Irish political commentator and podcaster Stephen Byrne, all about what them across the small pond think about Brexit and that, plus homelessness, crime and even more Brexit. Basically, you know, all the things that are absolutely right for a comedy politics podcast to talk about. Help me, please. Seriously, help me. So anyway, to kick off, here is this. <laughs> Sometimes I worry that I might be being a bit unfair to the current government. Because, for example, to me, the past week's reports indicating that violent crime, sex offences and homelessness have all risen dramatically, to me, they're signs that the government are doing a really, really terrible job of everything. But maybe I'm just looking at it wrongly. You know, maybe, for example, they're taking the paleo diet to its next evolutionary step and they now want everyone sleeping amongst nature and fighting for survival just like our ancient cavemen ancestors did as well. Maybe they think the UK isn't producing enough good bleak dystopian movies and are keen to boost creativity with intense stimulus. Or maybe, just maybe, just maybe it's absolutely none of those and, like I already thought, they're really, really useless, which, let's be fair, is far more likely. 
The Office of National Statistics say that violent crime is up 14%, with sex offences up 23%, something that should now drop by at least a percentage or two now that the President's Club has closed and will probably drop yet another percentage if Donald Trump doesn't visit in the end. Meanwhile, homelessness has risen for a seventh year in a row, with 2017 being a 15% rise on 2016. Now, look, there are loads of reasons for all of these statistics, and if you're an optimist, off your face, or probably working for the government, like, say, uh, Minister for Cabinet and that horrible math supply teacher that everyone's had at least once with coffee breath you could smell across the classroom, David Lidlington. He said, for example, that reasons for the increases in homelessness are complex. And they are complex if you don't understand how all the cuts that your government has made directly affect the lives of people. It's like saying, oh, the reasons for this squirrel dying are complex because it was to do with time and place and a series of circumstances when in fact it's just to do with the fact that you poked a sharp stick in its eye. You did it. You killed the squirrel, David. You awful man with terrible breath. It's not that hard to understand. Anyway, looking at the crime figures first, even if you want to say that different police forces log different figures differently or there may be issues in victims' willingness to report, there is a definite rise, so any change in those things would probably show more, not less, violent crimes. So the very likely real reason that there's a rise in these figures is because police numbers are falling every single year, with 930 less officers just between September 2016 and September 2017, and even the Home Office now saying we have the lowest numbers of officers since 1996, which, based on the road I lived on, wasn't a great time for knife crime. Or it was, if you're a big fan of it. This drop in police and the fact that many officers are given duties such as counter-terrorism, football match policing and more, all taking them away from patrolling or dealing with crimes, means that crims can be as confident in carrying around a knife as I am at driving 55 miles per hour on the 50 miles per hour average speed camera bit on the M1 because no one ever, ever cares. Really, no one cares. Seriously, no one cares. A spokesperson for Theresa May said that the Office for National Statistics has been clear that overall traditional crime is continuing to fall and is down by 40% since 2010. What on earth is traditional crime? Teams of Morris dancers doing bank raids, fish and chip fraud. Maybe non-violent crimes are down because why on earth would you bother spending hours cloning a bank card when you can just pop down the road with your stab stick and have a new phone in minutes? Homelessness has risen because rent has risen. Housing benefits have been cut completely for under-21s. Universal credit pays people late and they end up evicted. And there's not enough social or actually affordable housing. The government have pledged to halve rough sleeping by 2022. But if it keeps increasing by 15% each year like it has been, halving it by 2022 will still mean that there are more people rough sleeping then than there are now. None of this is helped by attitudes of people like Conservative leader of Windsor Council Simon Dudley, who's now facing calls of no confidence after saying that his area has been hit by an epidemic of rough sleepers and that they should be removed by the police for the royal wedding. Yes, because there's nothing more sympathetic to the plight of people struggling to find shelter than having them forcefully removed for a multi-million pound wedding for people who live in a castle with four times as many rooms as facial expressions. Also, none of this is helped by the 15,000 high-end luxury flats that can't be sold in London that sit empty because foreign investors don't want them and no one else can afford them. They're known as ghost flats, which is a stupid name because when I hear that, I assume it's the spirit of a once-dead flat that now haunts the location of where it used to stand. But instead, it's just somewhere so expensive it spooks other Londoners by being entirely unattainable, which is a really boring horror film and quite depressing. 
There's 4,751 homeless in the whole of the UK, according to statistics, and 15,000 empty flats. So that's not so much a tricky chicken, fox and grain puzzle as a why don't you just reclaim those flats, give them to those people, and then they can invite the chicken and fox round for a grain party. But, oh, God, don't leave them in the same room. Oh, that's all gone wrong. I remember once being told by someone in Belgium that the council there reclaim homes that have been empty for more than a year so that they can be resold or used as social housing. I can't seem to find anything about that online, so feel free to write in and tell me I'm completely wrong about it. And actually, they just fill them with, like, frites and have crazy frites parties. That's probably what they do. But whether it's real or not, and I'm pretty sure it's real, it is a brilliant idea, and it's also what the Labour Party are currently touting. Labour leader and stunt double for Stanley Tucci in Captain America, Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, that's an obscure description, but seriously, check it out. It's quite accurate. Um, he said they would immediately purchase 8,000 homes and end rough sleeping instantly, demanding that councils build more social housing and affordable housing too. Now, there are arguments from people such as economist Anne Pettifor, who I interviewed back in episode 71, uh, and she said this during then, that building more houses won't actually stop the housing crisis because to do that, it needs to have uh, more clamping down of speculation, more overall regulation. But look, this plan would actually end rough sleeping and it would help with constant population increases and it would also dilute the amount of arseholes in those horrible shiny high-rises that look like Sauron's Tower. As more and more criticism of Theresa May piles in, her official spokesperson said this week that she was grasping the many opportunities of Brexit while also acting on housing, schools and the NHS. Firstly, if you're grasping, it's because you don't have a firm grip. And secondly, if she's only acting, that explains why she's just pretending to care but not actually doing it. And those figures will sadly keep on rising. To be honest, I'd be far more convinced if the Conservatives just said that they were pioneering beyond the paleo. UK has always unfairly treated Ireland like a kid brother that it has to pick up from school only to entirely forget about and go to a disco instead, coming home hours later to find something's gone horribly wrong and now they're in a lot of trouble. There is a lot going on in Ireland right now with recently seated Taoiseach and sitcom retail manager, that's what he looks like seriously, Leo Varadkar, leading a minority government that nearly had to go through a snap election last year, an upcoming referendum on finally relaxing abortion laws, oh, and the possibility of a whacking great big border between them and Northern Ireland because everyone seemed to forget they exist during the Brexit referendum. Yeah, that little teeny tiny problem that just keeps annoyingly popping up because, oh, selfish, selfish Irish people want to derail Brexit just so a whole ton of historical difficulties that took years to fix don't all pop up again. So, so selfish. Well, that's how it's reported in the UK anyway, with The Sun, a paper entirely dictated by a drunk man up scaffolding shouting into a bucket, telling Veradica back in November to shut his gob because he implied the Irish border was the British government's responsibility. Because, you know, it is. Like Trump's never-happening war that he insists Mexico should pay for, it takes a special kind of thinking to assume someone else is going to take responsibility for a decision you've made and decided to do. Though that does sum up the Sun's general attitude towards publishing absolute bollocks, letting people take it seriously and never ever apologising for it. This week, I spoke to Steve Byrne, host of What Am Politics, an Irish political podcast, and I asked him just what the view of Ireland is of Brexit, what is happening in Irish politics right now, and will the abortion referendum actually happen or ironically be terminated before it gets there? This interview was recorded a couple of weeks ago, and in today's news it's been confirmed that the referendum will happen and that Veradica will campaign for yes, with the very opposite voice of the Bishop of Elfin, Dr Kevin Doran, saying that legalising abortion will pave the way to legalising euthanasia. Wow, that is some incredible scenes. Though, to be fair, in Kevin Doran's case, it's probably not that bad an idea. 
But other than that, I think pretty everything else is pretty much up to date. Um, but do bear in mind, a couple of things may have changed. Um, it was much fun chatting with Steve. And again, hugely, hugely useful on just updating me on what is happening just over the water. So I hope you find this informative and useful and enjoy. Here's Steve. First thing I want to ask you is, uh, there's been lots of news lately over here in the Britain of um, just lots of our banks and city firms and international law firms all moving from London to Dublin because they're all worried about Brexit. Um, plus, of course, loads and loads of people here have applied for Irish passports. Now, obviously, we're going to get to the issues of border and stuff later. But do you think in some ways Brexit is going to benefit Ireland, um, maybe in terms of business and things? Um, that. I've read being touted a lot in the UK media, especially the media that is anti-Brexit, because it seems that they really want to revel in the fact that of the terrible decision they think that people made, you're going to see all these jobs run away. And they seem to automatically lean towards Dublin, because I guess because you see it as like another English-speaking city with a bit of a financial centre. But to be honest, every major city in Western Europe is chomping at the bit to try and grab these potential Brexit jobs. So Dublin is competing against Paris, Frankfurt, Copenhagen, loads of other places. And like it, it it probably has a decent enough chance because it's closer to London than the rest of them and we do have the English speaking part but at the same time Dublin's only about a tenth the size of these other cities and it has its own problems so I think they're talking about that like maybe the insurance industry may focus on moving towards Dublin and then the actual financial trading places will move over to, to Paris and Frankfurt um, but we're not really banking on getting that many jobs out of it. We're still just worried about the, the negative effects more than anything. And plus, the biggest problem that Dublin has at the moment is a huge housing crisis. Um, it's really hard to find a, a decent place to live for an affordable price, like pretty much like every major city in the world at the moment, but especially so in Dublin, because again, it's so small. And during the crash, um, we didn't really build any new units of housing at all. And Dublin's population didn't really go down. In fact, it's gone up. And now everyone is scrambling to try and fit into the same like four or five apartments that are available every week. And if all these bankers and high-earning dudes start coming over and try to muscle in on those apartments, then that's just going to drive the prices up even more because we don't have, like, we're not going to be able to build the houses as quickly as these guys are going to want to come. So if anything, we're afraid of getting all these good jobs as much as anything. God, that's really depressing. I was hoping for a second that someone might benefit from this. <laughs> that was well, it. it looks, like, sort of, it looks yeah. like the Parisians are benefiting. They've already gotten a couple of the EU agencies that have moved out where Dublin was bidding, and it was apparently between Paris and Dublin, and it was a coin flip, and then the European bank industry is going to Paris instead of Dublin. And that just felt like a oh, goddamn coin flip. That's how we lost that job, like those yeah. gigs. That is a really depressing way of doing it, isn't it? At least with sort of Olympics, <laughs> you have to bid and things like that, but... That was absolute chance, and uh, and you lost. <laughs> and that's really, yes. that's really brutal. <laughs> that's the Irish way. <laughs> Damn, what a shame. Well, I mean, um, we'll get back to sort of Dublin and, and housing in a bit, but I, I think. Brexit, obviously, uh, is going... I mean, the, the weird thing about it was it was almost like when we were going through the campaign here, and in fact, in the aftermath, everyone seemed to forget that Ireland existed, uh, which <laughs> it was really it's a common quite... problem. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very strange. There were lots of voices going, hi, do you remember Do you remember Ireland's over there? Do you remember there's a, there's a border that's quite... And lo very few politicians mentioned it for about a year. Um, do yeah. you think... If anything, that... they're like, oh, we're just going to close down the border between the sea because, like, we don't actually border the EU. We just... We're on an island separately and then we're like hello you you do border an eu nation like it's part of what you are oh no you forgot 
Yeah, it's so strange, wasn't it? It's so, yeah, so weird. And, you know, especially with all the criticisms of sort of, you know, uh, for Northern Ireland often saying that they sometimes feel separate and everything, and then the UK kind of went, sorry, who are you? Um, it's very <laughs> weird. Um, so, but is there, now, I mean, this is a big question, um, but do you think there is any kind of solution to the border crisis that would end up being best for Ireland? Has anything been mentioned at all so far? Because, I mean, from news that I've heard, nobody has a clue. No, um, the best thing, the best option, actually, and I got pretty excited because it looked like it was potentially going to be written in the agreement. Um, what did they call that thing they signed before Christmas? Was it like the uh, understanding of how we're going to continue with the negotiations or something that there was all the controversy about in December? Yeah. Um, it looked like Theresa May was going to pull a fast one over Northern Ireland, and she was actually going to agree that the EU border would essentially be in the Irish Sea. So Northern Ireland would still remain part of the UK, but would still follow the same trading rules as the EU, whereas the UK, the rest of the UK could go off on their own, which would mean that you wouldn't have to have any kind of border control between North and South, and it would stay the same as it is. Because any sol any solution that and that doesn't change the way the border is 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 the best solution. Um, it like the 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 conflict of the troubles still kind of looms large in these issues because that obviously was a huge part of what the border was. And the Good Friday Agreement that came around in '98 uh, that, that helped to stop the fighting that actually has provisions provisions in it that the border between North and South basically has to be an invisible border. That when you're driving from Northern Ireland into the into the Republic of Ireland, it's essentially the same as driving between two different counties in England. And um, all you get is a sign saying, welcome to this county. It doesn't even say welcome to, to Ireland or Northern Ireland. And um, the only thing that changes is the kilometers, um, the, 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 road, the road speed changes from miles to kilometers. And maybe the roads get a little bit better or worse, depending on which side you're on. And apart from that, you, you don't know that you've, you've just crossed between two different um, countries. And that, that actually, that makes it work because I, I live in Dublin, but my family are from Donegal, which is in the northwest of Ireland. And to get there, I have to drive for about an hour through Northern Ireland. And it's just, I, I don't think twice about it. It's just as if I was driving from anywhere else in Ireland. But if I had to stop at a border control post at two different points in my journey and try to explain to a UK custom official why I'm driving on my way home, just, it just, like, I'm not a hardline nationalist by any means, but the idea of having to explain to a UK border official why I'm going home, just, it just kind of grinds my gears. So I can only imagine what kind of emotions that's going to bring out in the people who were actually fighting um, for these kind of rights that they got um, during the Good Friday Agreement. So the best solution would be to leave it alone. But as we saw after Theresa May nearly signed the deal and um, her, her, well, I don't know, they're not even coalition partners, the, uh, the DUP that's propping up her government in Westminster basically threw their toys out of the pram saying any notion of changing the status of Northern Ireland compared to the rest of the UK is utterly unacceptable. So then they had to suddenly go back and say, OK, we're going to look at the border later on, but we promise to be really nice about it, which wasn't any solution at all and just kind of kicks the can down a road again. So and a couple of times. Um, the, the Irish Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, actually said he's sick and tired of having to come up with solutions to, to try and fix the border problem that's been caused now by Brexit, because ultimately Brexit was a UK decision, and you guys are the ones that are going to have to start coming up with the solutions to try and fix the problem that you've made, which, of course, doesn't really help anything either, because then they're just like, well, we can't think of anything. It's just the problem that we're after making, and there's no easy solution. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty worried to see what's actually going to happen. Um, I know any kind of actual physical border checkpoint is just going to be, it's going to cause massive problems, um, not just economically, but also politically. And uh, like any other way around it, apart from the UK staying, the entire UK staying in the custom union, 
which obviously doesn't sit well with UK politics because that would completely piss off the uh, the people who wanted a, a proper Brexit. Um, it just it doesn't seem to be an easy solution. There doesn't seem to be any straightforward way to get this to work. No, I mean it's one of the one of the worries I have is like I, I totally agree uh, with Vladimir's stance of you know it's the UK did it, the UK should sort it out, but. Um, you know, so considering the UK's involvement in Ireland in the past, I kind of feel like maybe well, that's, we that's should. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I don't know if I trust us to, and and the fact that we completely forgot, uh, you know, about you guys uh, during the whole campaign kind of <laughs> yeah. doesn't really bode well for any kind of sensitive, thoughtful well, solution to this. That's why I'm pretty sure the solution about putting the border in the Irish Sea was what, like, I mean, we didn't want to say it openly because if if it turned out that the Dublin government was pushing for treating Northern Ireland different to the rest of the UK, it will completely infuriate the unionists in northern ireland and they'd be able to point to their to their eternal enemies in dublin and say look you guys are just using this as a backdoor for united ireland but practically obviously it is the best solution for the dublin government and i know for a fact that they've been shouting really really hard in the back rooms of brussels at the uk and eu officials to say this is the only solution that's going to work and that was what we nearly got just before christmas until i think it was actually the I don't know who got the blame for leaking the agreement before it got signed, and that's why the uh, the DUP were able to scupper it at the last minute. But it basically just meant that we didn't get any solution and it had to be pushed forward because Ireland aren't going to agree to anything that gets written on paper that says a hard border is going to get rebuilt. And the UK would probably... The UK just want to get whatever they can to get the entire whole deal through because they just see the border between North and South of Ireland as just being one part of what's part of the bigger Brexit problem. I, I, one of the things I read, I mean, there's there's bits sort of not obvious as such, but I know about you know obviously there's the customs union issues, uh, single market, there's trading issues, uh, which is why you know uh, a non a third country can't you know just trade with the EU. I understand that, but I didn't realise as well how how many problems a hard board would cause between um, sort of shared medical aid in North and, and and the Republic, because apparently there's quite a lot of sharing between hospitals with different things specialising in Northern Ireland that specialise in the Republic um, and yeah. patients being sent between. And obviously a hard board would cause quite a lot of issues. Well, especially for um, Donegal, like, like my home county, as I mentioned, it's, 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 you have to drive to Northern Ireland. It only shares two miles of border with the Republic of Ireland, and then it, short, it shares nearly 70 miles of border with the north. It's basically kind of just sticking on its own out there. It's almost like a third little unit on the island. And um, it's pretty hard for it to get proper funding because, like, for example, building a, a proper mo uh, motorway between Dublin and Donegal involves going entirely through the north. And so nobody wants to have to pay for that. So that just doesn't happen. And they also shut down the railways and it basically just sits on its own up there. And a solution to fixing the medical problem was because it was so far away from proper hospitals in the Republic that they said, OK, you guys can use the um, Derry slash London Derry, which is the official name now for that city. Um, it's, if, if, if you're from the south like me, you say Derry. <laughs> if you're a unionist from Northern Ireland, you say London Derry. So the, um, I, I have been there you. and I've had to be very <laughs> careful before. Yeah, <laughs> that's why apparently the official name is just slash city. So um, <laughs> if you want if you if you want to get like proper um, um, specialist treatment, you go to the hospital in Derry um, from Donegal, and that's like an open agreement between the NHS in the UK and the uh, HSE is the Irish equivalent. And obviously, yeah, I mean, if there was to be suddenly a hard border between those two, um, it's going to add a, uh, certainly a lot more bureaucracy, if not just make it nearly impossible. And um, I mean, uh, forgive me for possibly being stupid here, but how does a border in the sea work? Because 
I can't, you know, I, I, I can't really wrap my head around that. Does that mean that you have to have sort of some poor <laughs> bloke standing on a buoy <laughs> trying to get passports <laughs> from a no, yacht? Not, like, I don't get, yeah. <laughs> there's not going to be a wire fence built halfway between um, <laughs> Scotland and Northern Ireland. It just means that all the checkpoints happen in the, in the ports after you get on and off the boats, which is a lot easier to manage if you're if you're trying to organize like uh, a proper customs border between different two different places whereas there's something like i think there's like like nearly 340 different uh, road crossing points between northern ireland and southern ireland which means if you don't if you don't actually have the custom checkpoints at the at the border ports then you're going to have to put them at these actually at, at these roads and you're probably going to have to shut down a lot of those small roads roads as well because otherwise the smugglers are just going to go through them right Right, good. Well, this all sounds really brilliant. Um, <laughs> and well, I mean, I, I know you, you mentioned it earlier, and and again, it's it's probably something that's been reported here more, but maybe. But the the subject of reunification has come up quite a few times, and mainly there was a moment um, just before Christmas, I think, when Veronica sort of uh, congratulated or, or basically praised Ender Kenny's uh, previous agreement with the EU that Northern Ireland would automatically rejoin the EU if reunification happened. Um, I'm guessing reunification is not a remote. Possibilities. Is there any want for that? Um, it is a remote possibility because ultimately every um, political party in the south of Ireland has in its official manifestos that they eventually want to see a united Ireland. The only one that properly takes it seriously and wears it as part of its political, like practical dogma is Sinn Féin because they operate both in, both in the north and the south in Belfast and Dublin. Um, but it... Like I mean, it has become more tangible since since the whole Brexit thing happened because now it like it it would be one practical solution to do it like and that's essentially what they were going to try and do before before Christmas. Even though like politically the Northern Ireland would have stayed with the UK, economically it would have been with the South. And some kind of workaround solution if they do eventually get to it sounds like a more likely thing than actually having a 32 county repu um, republic. I just can't see that ever flying as a practical solution for the for the unionists in Northern Ireland. It's basically been the opposite of what they've been about for the last 200 years. And any kind of any any attempt to force that upon them by Dublin and London, I think, is just going to end up with more is like a return to the violence that we had, and uh, nobody wants to see that happen. Um, it, so I guess what Leo Varadkar was praising Enda was just like. He managed to get it into some official document of the EU to say that, like, do you remember the discussions going on at the moment, like about Catalonia? If Catalonia was to separate from Spain, mm. they would have a huge trouble of trying to actually join the EU. So, Enda Kenny, seeing all this and, this and what was going on with Scotland as well, they would like that was they were saying, oh, you'd have trouble trying to rejoin the EU as a separate nation. Enda Kenny just wanted to get it written down on the on the EU books that on a 1% chance that we ever had a proper united Ireland, that Northern Ireland would just be able to automatically flip into membership with the entire rest of the Republic of Ireland, which, you know, it's, 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 it's like a little token gesture, but I guess it makes, it makes a bit of a, a, a bit of a, a bit of an impact for people that consider reunification part of like their whole, their whole mantra. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And we'll be back with Steve in a minute, but first... feels like nothing really happens with Brexit. I mean, nearly 19 months since the referendum, and although it's constantly in the news, most of the news has been about how no-one knows what's going on, or how something we thought was about to happen isn't, or how something MPs shouldn't vote for because it's awful has now been voted for again, or how, once again, David Davis has got his head stuck in a banister because he swears this time he'll be able to get it out despite the other 45 attempts going wrong. I mean, that hasn't actually been in the news, but it also basically has. But this week's news is different. This week's Brexit news is actually interesting. Psych! It's totally the same. Ha! Got ya. I mean, okay, not entirely psych. It's a little bit interesting uh, in that the EU have finally agreed a transition period for the UK from March 2019 when we leave to December 2020, uh, during which we'll still be part of the single market and customs union and have to abide by EU laws and basically just get a little bit more time to piss about and delay preparing the things that we really need even longer. Except the difference between this time and while we're actually in the EU up until March of 2019 is that we're not going to have any say in EU laws that are created over that period. So if, during the transition period, the EU were really mean slash clever slash hilarious, they just spend that whole time inflicting a ton of laws that only affected the UK and we just have to deal with it. You know, they could just say, um, ban the colour blue being used on passports or, you know, genuinely ban bendy bananas or make it law that anyone from Europe Europe has to pretend not to be able to see us when we're in the room. The idea is that during this transition period, the UK can safely negotiate trade deals with the 27 EU countries while still being able to trade under existing laws because you can't do any of the negotiating stuff under the Article 52 year period. The reality is, though, is that this transition period gives us only 14 months to do all those transitions, so it's kind of unlikely that we're going to sort anything out because we haven't already so far. Now, yes, I'm being a pessimist, but I'm also aware that during a parliamentary committee meeting last week, Hillary Benn questioned David Davis on why he said in 2016 that we can negotiate a free trade area massively larger than the EU within two years and how that's definitely not happened, has it, since 2016? And David Davis replied, laughing, well, that was then and this is now. Ha ha ha. Great. I mean, that's basically the political equivalent of saying, "Opsy daisy I don't know what I do. Ha ha. Before scratching your head and falling backwards off a wall. 
So really, what we need is longer than 14 months for the transition, and really, really, what we need is Article 50 to be extended, and really, 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 what we need is a bunch of idiots not in charge, you know, so then we'll have even more prep time before going into negotiations and some proper prep. But of course, all of that would upset Brexiteers like undead Jack Skellington, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and the like, who'd prefer to pull their leg out of the wreckage and bleed to death rather than patiently wait for the fire brigade to safely remove them first. Some of the hard Brexiteering from within the Conservative Party makes sense when you hear about Channel 4's dispatches programme doing an undercover investigation, which found that more than 20 former ministers have become guns for hire, making thousands giving advice on Brexit to private companies who want inside advice. One of these ministers is Andrew Lansley, aka the former health secretary, aka an even sadder droopy the dog. He's been charging pharmaceutical companies €5,000 a day for Brexit advice, and he said he was happy to give information to a Chinese company the programme created for its investigation. He said he could provide intelligence and advice from his close former colleague, disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox. So, I mean, to be fair, it's pretty questionable if intelligence is the right word at all. Paying for parliamentary advice is not allowed and any financial interests or outside work have to be declared by politicians in the public register, which many of these politicians have said that they've done. So technically, what they're doing is not illegal as such, but you have to wonder what sort of deals they'll be voting for or against when they've got companies who may benefit from certain law changes paying them thousands every day for so-called advice. I mean, if it is coming from Liam Fox, you'd actually probably get better so-called advice from a taxidermy pig. The EU withdrawal bill is now in the House of Lords after that was rushed through the Commons without any care for amendments that could have stopped a government power grab or ensured citizens' rights. The Lords, hopefully, though, will give it a bit more time, especially as they all look like the sort of people who'd unnecessarily drive 30 miles per hour in the middle lane of a motorway so as not to rush. The Lords Committee has already said that the withdrawal bill is fundamentally flawed and needs substantial changes. Hopefully that's what they'll do when they debate it this week, and then no doubt all the rabid papers will start calling them traitors to the country because they've spent more than five minutes working on actual law, when we all know a true British patriot would just write the law is deaf to traitors and make passports blue in crayon on some sugar paper. It's like everyone has to bow down to the demands of two-year-olds who just want things without knowing why, when really, instead of doing what they say, we should probably just distract them with something shiny or threaten to go home without them and leave them on the floor crying and get on with not ruining things. Next time Mog or Fox or Ledsom or whoever complain that Brexit is being diluted, I think protocol should be for everyone to point in the opposite direction to where they're facing and go, oh look, a red choo-choo train, and we should have some sort of reasonable deal within days. And now, back to Steve. I wanted to ask, I mean, there's a lot about Irish politics that I haven't got a clue about, and that's partly because, uh, I mean, again, the UK seems to forget that you guys exist half the time, which is <laughs> horrific. Um, but what I, one, of the, one of the small tidbits we got last year, and I think, again, we mainly heard about this because the kind of Brexiteers hoped that this would... Uh, mean that Leo Vradiker could ignore Brexit for a bit and they could get more things passed by him. But um, at the end of November last year, it seemed as though you might be heading for a snap election over a police whistleblower yeah. scandal, which I don't know much about. But can you tell us a bit about that and what was the fallout? And, and obviously now the snap election was avoided. So what happened? Um, okay, so there's been problems with the uh, our police forces called the Garda Síochána, and there's been huge problems with those guys for quite a long time now. It started coming out into the open around 2012 when a Garda sergeant called Morris McCabe 
stepped forwards into the into the light um, with all like all these different allegations of problems within the police, including um, assault cases not being done properly and just kind of cover ups within within the guards. And the, the one that made the biggest media attention was that um, penalty points given to celebrities. I, I presume you guys have got penalty points for driving offences as well, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah penalty I've, got, points I've got a few myself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean you personally, but I meant the UK, yeah. I know, I just, my guilt, my guilt rose to the surface. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, penalty points that were given to uh, minor celebrities and some major celebrities were wiped, basically, because the guards were like, oh, yeah, sure, we, we know this fella. And just, Ireland's a very small country. Everybody knows everybody, essentially. Like, the annoying thing is, is when you go over to somewhere like London or America and someone's like, oh, I met this person from Ireland. You know them? And you're about to go, oh, for God's sakes, we don't... Uh, actually, oh, yeah, no, I do know that person. Yeah, that's my cousin. <laughs> it's, it's, it's basically like that. So a lot of these celebrities knew a couple of guards and they're like, oh, would you mind wiping off this thing? And it's like, oh, yeah, sure. In exchange for tickets to X or Y, we will. And it turns out that they'd done that quite a lot and that loads and loads of different traffic offences were basically just wiped off the slates. And that and a couple of other more serious offences were raised. And the... As you as you can imagine, the the structure of the Guardi reacted to this um, in a very inappropriate and immature fashion, and basically tried to discredit the whistleblower rather than actually address the plot of the problems that he was um, trying to to highlight. And it just ended up being like a shouting match between the two, and it actually accumulated in the the Garda commissioner having to step down, and then him him getting replaced by um, a lady called Noreen O'Sullivan, and the justice minister as well. He had to step down, and he got replaced by who became the uh, Tarnishta, which is the deputy the deputy prime minister, and um, Francis Fitzgerald. And then it kept like that happened in 2012, and so that was the end of 2017 last year, and it kept on kind of rising and, and bubbling, and there'll be different things coming to the surface that different allegations against the guards and how they tried to discredit the uh, whistleblower. So the one that caused the the most recent uh, kerfuffle was it turned out that when Frances Fitzgerald, who was the Tanishta but no longer the Justice Minister, when she was the Justice Minister, she agreed on an email, like she said, that's a good idea to a plan to further discredit uh, Morris McCabe, including accusing him of being um, a child molester, which is a pretty oh, serious allegation to throw around. And so the fact, and she had, she had managed to stay pretty clean during the whole thing. She wasn't, um, she wasn't tainted by any of the different allegations that were going on. But once it turned out that someone accused her of knowing about it, um, the opposition party, uh, Fianna Fáil, who are also supporting the minority government, because it's a very confusing system here at the moment, um, said that she had to go. And Leo Varadkar was just a newly elected Taoiseach. He managed to take over after Enda Kenny. And actually, Enda Kenny, although he didn't officially step down because of the, the police scandal, it kind of was related to it as well. He just managed to delay his, his departure by a couple of months to make it look like it wasn't. But there was right. a big crisis back in the spring that meant he, he was pretty much done. He had to go in the summer. So Leo Varadkar um, tried to stand up to... Fianna Fáil saying, no, um, you guys can't just decide when I'm going to get rid of uh, one of my ministers. Um, she's going to stay. But then eventually more and more emails come out in the press over a weekend. And this is all going on at the same time as those big Brexit negotiations were going on in the EU. So it's good to know that Irish politicians can be just as professional as everybody else and look at the important <laughs> things. And um, it, it turned out that Leo had to blink first. He, he eventually had to um, let his minister stand down and the opposition party who are technically supporting the government managed to win. Um, it definitely weakened the minority government at the stands because now Fianna Fáil 
they got a win and they essentially have the ability to call on the resignation of any government ministers that they want on that basis. So if any kind of other crisis was to come to the fore, I don't think there's going to be as much political capital left to keep the coalition going. And I think it's really likely that after we get um, the abortion referendum out of the way in the summer, that there probably will be another election by the end of the year. Um, they might let one more budget pass in 2018 and then have another election in the spring of 2019. But either way, it doesn't look likely that this government's going to full, uh, serve its full five years. Right, yeah, because I, I wanted to ask how that was going anyway. I mean, because when Leo Varadkar first uh, sort of became the Taoiseach, he, I mean, he it was quite divisive. I mean, sort of from my point of view, I saw he was obviously, you know, mixed race and gay, but then on the other hand, he hates, uh, uh, you know, um, or was anti-abortion and he kind of seemed to dislike workers' rights. And I thought, well, that must annoy everyone on all sides of the political spectrum. That's kind of a kind of no, casual... No, not at all. Not at all. Um, <laughs> Irish politics are pretty conservative, so the workers' rights things doesn't come up at all unless right. you're like, <laughs> like 30% of the country who are lefties. Uh, most people are like, ah, sure, whatever. And the, sure, um, okay. he was actually, he's less anti-abortion than the guy he was running against for the leadership and of, of Fianna Gael. Um, uh, Simon Coveney was more anti-abortion and Leo was actually the more liberal of the two potential Taoiseachs. Right, but didn't he, because I remember at some point he said women just get them for leisure or something. I think that was one of his comments, which sounded he, uh, appalling. And that's less yeah. extreme than the other guy. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to be the person who has to defend Leo Varadkar, Ireland's conservative sure. T-shirt. But at the same, Leo's been in politics since he was a seventeen-year-old politics nerd, and he he came in from the right wing of the Fine Gael party, and he seen himself as one of these um, proto-libertarian, you know, nerds that were around back in the two thousands. Um, he's still quite a young man, so he, he kind of worked his way up, and he has gotten more practical and centrist as he's gone on, and I think even now. They had they had a big the the Fine Gael party had a five hour meeting yesterday to discuss um, what kind of uh, uh, an abortion referendum they would like to see happen, and as far as I can tell, Leo is inclined to to liberalise it and to actually have a to well at least give the option to the Irish people to have like a proper liberal abortion system. So if anything, he seems to he seems to have gotten a lot more practical in his politics, and I can't see him actually wanting to be wanting to cause any more controversy by taking any more of those old hard stances that he used to take. Sure, because at the moment, as you said, his, his stance is weakened anyway, so that could put him in quite a dangerous position. Yeah, but the thing about the abortion referendum is that it's almost above the, the, the general political flay. It's it's like it's such a controversial issue, and there's there's essentially no right answer. No matter which answer you pick, you're going to end up pissing off one of the one of your constituents. Um, so every all the politicians just trying to like step around it as much as they can, um, and they they kind of just want to get the referendum out of the way to say that they did it, and then like let, let whatever chips fall that may and i don't think any party is going to have any proper political gains or or setbacks unless one of them has a politician that comes out and just becomes an absolute proto-fascist and, and declares that women should just be locked up and and kept as servants and, and baby makers which it is possible because essentially that's what our constitution says and if <laughs> there's still quite a lot of traditional conservative dudes still walking around those parties so it still is possible i guess I mean, I, I, the, the abortion um, referendum that's going to happen, I mean, it's, it's sort of, this is part of to do with the, the brilliant sort of repeal the eighth campaign that really gained traction and, and we know about over here as well. And um, But do you think, I mean, do you think it's likely to pass? It feels like it's a very generational thing, sort of as though um, the younger, sort of the younger people in Ireland are kind of more socially progressive and, and want to push this through. Do you think it's a sign of Ireland kind of changing? Um, yeah, I guess. Like, I mean, it's you can't obviously say that with a blanket with a blanket um, like definition. There are a lot, lots of, like there was um, the student union president of one of Dublin's biggest universities last year, um, UCD. She was elected as a pro-life 
um, uh, what would you call it, activist, and she ended up getting kicked out of her office within a couple of months of, of being uh, when the kids came back um, to school in September because they think that she tried to block access to abortion information or like because it is legal in Ireland to supply information on how you can go about getting an abortion in the UK even if it's not legal to actually provide those services here in Ireland. And she tried to block those things being provided to students on campus and they they managed to recall her and kick her out. And she was only, like, she's only in her early 20s. And she's definitely from quite a young, strong cohort that you are going to see coming out and um, campaigning on the pro-life side when the referendum does come about. But yeah, I mean, I guess ultimately it's just like everywhere else. The older you are, the more right-wing you are. And um, it is, we, we do see it as like a proper hangover from our old um, Catholic theocracy days that we had running this country since we got independence up until, like I'd say, the 80s or the 90s. Um, and it it's like when you say the referendum that is going to happen, it still hasn't actually been scheduled. And right. there's any, any, any number of things could happen that Leo could could manage to dodge the bullet if he says, oh, Brexit is too important. We can't let the we can't let the conversation change from that. But at the same time, I do think that they are actually going to let it happen. It just depends on what the actual um, referendum itself is going to be about. So at the moment, the Eighth Amendment um, says that the, the rights of life um, to the unborn is equal to that of the mother. And what the Eighth Amendment people want to see, the anti-Eighth Amendment people want to see, is just that they want all reference to abortion and the right of and the rights of life to the unborn taken out of the constitution, and then you can just go and have legislation to fix it, like most other countries have. Mm. Whereas what seems to be most likely is that they're going to try and change the wording of the amendment itself to try and include what provisions they want to have, which is like you shouldn't have these technical these technical details of how to govern someone's medical problems in a constitution because it's just too it's just too rigid and, and difficult a, a place to put it in your governance. So. I, I'm still I'm, I'm still not that hopeful that it's going to be um, it's going to be a good enough change that the Eighth Amendment people are even going to be happy to try and campaign for it. So if anything, it might be kind of a lackluster campaign on their part, and then it might not actually pass just because the people who want to see a change it isn't a good enough change for them to actually go out and, and campaign for. Kind of like what happened with Hillary Clinton, I guess, last year in the U.S. Um, she wasn't left wing enough for the left wing people to want to go out and campaign for, her, and then ultimately what happened was is that the bad guys actually won. Sure. Yeah, it could end up being a sort of step backwards because I, I guess if that's what happens with this uh, with the referendum abortion, and then the people don't want to go out and campaign for it because it's not good enough, and then it gets an, a negative vote, then you end up being pushed back. You know, it's going to be a long yeah. time before there's another referendum. Exactly. Well, we had this. I think the the original Eighth Amendment came in in 1982, and we've had four referendums on the issue since. It seems to come up every couple of decades, and every time it comes up. It's a massive acrimonious campaign that basically tears the country apart. You have kids shouting at their parents about different views, and the same thing is going to happen now in the summer. It's just it's not going to be an easy one to to, to try and push through, but it is super important. And I hope I hope really do hope that it is going to be a proper referendum to get rid of that that terrible that terrible amendment because at the moment Ireland has the same abortion rates as any other um, liberal Western country. We just we just have the shameful practice of making women leave Ireland to go and get it, which just adds to their their discomforts and and just makes life harder for them, which just is not right. It's not right to do. And we actually have a podcast episode about that um, called What Am the Eighth Amendment with um, uh, an Irish activist and comedian called Tara Flynn. And she oh, yeah. talks. Know, Tara, she's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She talks really openly and um, she explains it a lot better than I've been able to do. So I recommend people check that out if they want to learn more. 
Excellent. Yes, you, you definitely should do that, listeners. Um, and Tara is absolutely brilliant. Um, I yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? Because I I think, uh, and I know this is a sort of a, a, an odd thing to compare it to in some ways, but like you know, it was it was quite a relief when the when the equal marriage uh, when the gay marriage bill got passed was that yeah. in 20, 2015, That referendum. Yeah. Uh, went forward and that was kind of like oh does this mean that things are changing for ireland just in terms of uh in terms of being socially progressive but i know the abortion uh is a very different issue in some ways um but probably the yeah. same sort of divisions isn't it in society really i yeah i guess like it is you'd, you'd find the same groups that were campaigning against the equal marriage that be campaigning against uh, getting rid of the eighth but at the same time abortion is a controversial issue pretty much in most western countries now i mean there are, there are still a couple of head cases over in the uk that want to see your laws roll back and of yep. course we all know how much trouble they have with it in certain states in the US. I mean, it basically is illegal in some states in the US because the state governments have managed to get around the Roe versus Wade to such an extent that it's almost impossible for women to access that, those services. So, I mean, it's not it's not necessarily unique to Ireland, the problem. It just, our problem is, is that we had this, this these, these Catholic these Catholic arseholes running the place back in the in the in the middle of the century that managed to put into our constitution such a hard rule that's really hard to get around. Good. Well, fingers crossed uh, for when it happens. Hopefully there will be some decent change. Um, and just the, the very last question I want to ask you, thanks for talking to me today. Um, apart from, and this is the thing that I ask every every single person that comes to the show, uh, just apart from yourself and your uh, brilliant podcast, What Am Politics, and listeners should definitely check that out and check out the one um, about Repeal the Eighth. Um, who else would you recommend that listeners follow, read up to, or, or listen to, or whatever, for Irish politics, or in fact any other politics? Who are your favourites? Who do you go to? Um, I would say there's an excellent journalist called Gavin Riley, and check him out on Twitter. He tends to um, tweet quite a lot about what's going on on an hour-to-hour basis on Irish politics, so I, I try and follow him like every couple of hours just to see what's going on. He moves between different uh, publications and TV stations so quickly that I'm not really sure. I think he's working with TV3 now in Ireland, which is actually going to be changed to Virgin TV pretty soon, so his job, his job title is going to change again. Um, there's another dude called Jason O'Mahony, um, he's a blogger and a uh, frequent tweeter, and he specifically calls himself a centrist, um, which is a rare thing in Irish politics because most people don't really realise what a centrist is. And then there's also Ellen Coyne. I think she writes for The Times Ireland, and she is pretty good to follow on what's going on with the Eighth Amendment because she keeps a close eye on that. And then there's a really good podcast. Um, may, uh, I can't remember the name of the people that make it, but it is called The Irish Passport Abroad, and that's made by two uh, Irish expats. I think one of them lives in Brussels and one of them lives in London. And they, kind of, they, they specifically set out to make this podcast to try and explain Ireland and Irish politics to people who aren't from there, which is... It's, it's quite an often conversation that we have to have, as I've been having with you. <laughs> Big thanks to Steve for chatting with me. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at the Steve Byrne. That's B Y R N E. And his podcast, What Am Politics, is on all them podcast providers like iTunes or Podbean or AudioCoff or Soundgibbon or whatever. And you can find that podcast on Twitter at What Am Politics. So do check it out too. Um, I'll also be posting all of Steve's recommends on the Twitter and Facebook this week. So do look out for that. And I've got next week's guest and the week after all lined up. But after that, I am back to scrabbling for interviewees again. So if you have any subject you'd like me to interview someone about or someone you'd like me to interview in particular, do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, you could record your message and then spend time reversing it and hiding it on an upcoming album so it can only be heard if played backwards, only for no one to ever hear it because why would you do that with an MP3, you idiot? Vinyl is dead. 
Anyway, sorry, email is definitely best. And that is the end of this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thank you for listening once again, or even not listening and just hitting play and then pressing the forward 15 seconds button on your player until it's cleared so you've got space on your phone, because how could one person listen to all of those things? Yes, I do that lots. Yes, I feel awful about it. A bit, a bit awful. A really tiny bit of the sort that's kind of not really there. But look, if you don't do that and you do listen properly and enjoy this podcast, please do tell other people about it, post about it on social media, subscribe and review on your podcast app and donate to the Patreon or Kofi accounts if you can too and if you can't maybe just draw a picture of you donating and what it would look like and then email it to me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com and I'll review your drawing and then report you for spam big thanks to Acast for hosting the show and my brother The Last Skeptic for all of his musics and this will be back next week when I'll be asking just how David Davis managed to reduce our transition deal to only five minutes during which the EU inflict the law that no one called David Davis is allowed to wear trousers outside and then they all gang up to custard pie him as he leaves the meeting room farewell this week's show was brought to you by Robinson's Diluted Brexit, a dark blue passport's colour bitter liquid with a taste that lingers for far, far longer than you think it will. Warning, water down with three parts sensible rigorous planning for your own safety, otherwise can affect growth. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.